be sure to follow us on Instagram at criminalafpod or click on the link in the episode description. For a narrative version of this episode, subscribe to The Serial Holic, available wherever you listen to podcasts, or visit www.theserialholic.com. In this episode, we revisit the shocking and brutal story of Ed Kemper, the co-ed killer, the man who made the words mommy issues a common expression. After years of being emasculated by his mother, his immense fear of rejection meant that he could only have relations with a woman if she was dead. And had her head cut off. <laughs> I'm Dave Jari. I'm Garrett Quarter. And this is Criminal as What's good, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Criminal AF. Once again, I am Dave Jari, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Garrett Corder. How are we doing? So, just a reminder that this is a true crime podcast. <laughs> Pet <in> the head. <laughs> <laughs> there will be talk of murder, rape, torture, arson, and pretty much any crime that would haunt your nightmares at any given moment. There will be detailed descriptions of said events. And there will be vulgar language, Garrett. Like what? Like. <laughs> okay. <sorry. laughs> we understand that criminal AF is not for everyone, <laughs> but we just ask that you at least give it a try. And if it's not for you, hey, thanks for trying it out. But for this, welcome, welcome to, to the debauchery. debauchery. You know where I would like to go right now? I've been thinking of a, a vacation. Ding, 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 ding. I want to go to Florida. You want to hear Florida man of the day? I want to hear Florida. And today's Florida man of the day. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go to Florida, Dave? I want to go to Florida. I do too, actually. It's nice down there. I know, right now? (laughs) Real nice. Fort Pierce. Fort Pierce, Florida. A man on a motorized lawnmower was arrested on a driving while license suspended charge. After accusations, he ran a stop sign and struck a car. An affidavit? Affidavit. 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 Yeah. With a T. (laughs) An affidavit states. Yes, he was on a lawnmower. Fort Pierce police on February 14th went, went to South US 1 in Tumblin King Road after a report of a crash involving a lawnmower and a vehicle. The driver of a Dodge Charger told police he was eastbound on Tumble King Road when a man identified as David Dixon, 54, ran a stop sign on a motorized lawnmower. <laughs> he said Dixon struck his charger before driving off on the motorized lawnmower maintenance. The way they called it, the motorized lawn maintenance implement. <laughs> what? <laughs> he said He said Dixon returned on a bicycle. <laughs> what? He just stashed the... I wasn't on the mower. Yeah, what are you talking about? Uh, Dixon said he was stranded on the side of the road when the charger struck his lawnmower. Dixon told police his license is suspended and he gets around on his lawnmower and bicycle. It appears Dixon was not aware that he could not use his motorized lawnmower as a mode of transportation with a suspended driver's license. Dixon of the... 
of the 4200 block of Garrison Lane in Fort Pierce was arrested on a driving while license suspended habitual offender charge. Habitual offender. He was a habitual. Oh, okay. Dude, all I thought of when I read this story was <laughs> Rick... <laughs> Bobby Boucher <laughs> going to school on his, <laughs> on his lawnmower. Mama said that alligators are so ornery because they got all them teeth and ain't got no toothbrush. Well, Mama's wrong again. <laughs> you like license suspended. You know he's a drunk. And he's oh man, that is that hilarious. Just riding around in his tractor, and then the fact that he just disappeared and then came oh, yeah. back on the bike. Yeah, like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Yeah, runs a stop sign going like three point seven miles an hour. I just I keep the flashback is when Vicky Valencourt tuned his <laughs> tuned the, the mower and he just he's, woo! Yeah. that's that's a very Florida story if I haven't heard one. So here's chapter one of Ed Kemper. Co-ed killer. One of my favorites. Serial killer. According to the dictionary, a serial killer is a person who commits a series of murders, often with no apparent motive, and typically following a characteristic behavior pattern. If you've heard this term, then you can thank Robert Ressler and John Douglas, both agents working for the FBI who came together to seek an understanding of murders that seemed irrational, spontaneous, no rhyme or reason, and in the 1970s, almost impossible to solve. Almost. You see, before this, the term used for these killers was mass murderer. But Ressler and Douglas were adamant that you couldn't classify these types of murders in the same aspect as, say, the University of Texas Massacre where in 1966, Charles Whitman, after murdering his wife and mother the previous night, climbed to the top of the university clock tower and murdered 16 more people. No. They knew that these murders were different, and the more they learned about them, they realized that these murders weren't so irrational. There was more behind them. They were meticulous, consistent, and dare we say, predictable. Ressler and Douglas, along with forensic nurse Ann Burgess, began what is now referred to as the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, and hence, the term serial killer, was born. Ressler and Douglas scoured the country looking to interview these killers to better understand how their minds work and to create a criminal psychological profile. They interviewed many killers, like David Berkowitz, John Wayne Gacy, and Ted Bundy. But arguably, none helped Ressler and Douglas with their new craft more so than a man named Edmund Kemper III. Ed Kemper, the co-ed killer, born December 18, 1948 in Burbank, California, the son of Edmund, a World War II veteran, and Clarnell Kemper. Ed was a large baby, weighing in at 13 pounds, but at the time of his murders, he would stand six feet, nine inches tall. His young life was tumultuous, to say the least. Although he was very close to his father, his mother, on the other hand. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. And 
I watched the alcohol increase. I watched her social life drop off. I watched her get bizarre. She had terrible pain from her life, earlier life, her upbringing, uh, a failed marriage with my father. I'm a constant reminder of that failure. She was described by many as spiteful, abusive, and neurotic, not only towards Kemper, but his father as well, and would berate him in front of Kemper and his two sisters. His father was quoted as saying, Suicide missions we faced during wartime was nothing compared to living with her. And as I described, Kemper's parents split in 1957, and his mother took Kemper and his sisters to live in Montana. So the thing that I find like pretty interesting, just to kick it off, I know it's not particularly Ed Kemper related, but I think the story of how they came about analyzing serial killers, you know, coming up with the, the triad and everything like that, you yeah. know, where... For those that know, don't know, the triad is uh, animal torture, wetting the bed, and arson. Well, I mean, it makes sense that they would have come up with the behavioral, right? You know, investigators during the seventies because that was just oh yeah, it's peak. That's peak. Yeah, it's a know, decade. All, yeah. <laughs> a decade of killing. Yeah, don't don't go hitchhiking in the seventies. <laughs> That's for sure. But it's, it's just amazing because you know they had to sit down with all of these individuals. Yep. You know. And basically, like, all right, what do they all have in common? Type of people they like to kill, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. Um, and now, based on this information, like, even today, they say that there's an, uh, about 200 active serial killers in the U.S. 200 of them yep. out there. And then, Sleep and, tight, guys. Yeah. <laughs> and another active stat is that <clears throat> it's, they said that every single person in America, and it's probably worldwide, too, who knows, that every single American has crossed paths with a serial killer. Oh, I believe that. You know, whether it's at the beach, at the store, at, you know, wherever, you know, college campus. It just makes you think that, like, any given second, you know. And it, it, it brings me back to uh, the Cheshire murders. Yeah. That just by chance that they're at a stop and shop parking lot. It's yeah, you, when you're, you're mo at your most vulnerable. Right. You know what I mean? You know, you go there to pick up some freaking <laughs> groceries, and there's some just guy sitting in his car being like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'm yeah, going to murder. I'm going to finally, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to do this one. You know? Yeah, just because they're active doesn't mean they're actually, they, you might be the first first uh, victim. Right. But yeah, going into Kemper, man, I, his I, mother was fucking awful. I grew the stash for Kemper. Did Kemper you? Episode, yeah. Oh, it looks nice. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but his mom is wild. Yeah. And that's another that should be part of the triad too. I right. mean, I know not everybody had, but there was mommy issues were involved in a lot of these guys. Right. Yeah. I mean, pretty much anybody you look at, you know, it's their mothers were just like or non-existent, non-existent. or not there. Right. You know what I mean? Or horrible. Now, with Ed's father, he actually said, you know, like dealing with his mother, like he'd rather deal with the suicide missions in World War II. Then have to deal with it with her. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's saying something. That's saying something ridiculous, you know? But, I mean, she, there are so many things. Like, you're worthless. You're useless. No woman is going to like you. You know, no matter what you do in your life, you're going to fail. And, like, all this other kind of stuff. The dude's, the kid's nine years old. Yeah. You know what I mean? That And that's just the stories that, like, you know, are were made public by by him. Yeah. yeah. Like, we, we don't know the, like, it was probably so much worse. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's. And like, like his sisters, I guess even like joined in on it, you know. Yeah, well, you, that's human nature to gang up on the, you on know, the, the weakling, the weak, yeah. the weakest link. 
But yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll dive a little bit more into it uh, as we go along uh, with chapter two. Now keep in mind, there are a few factors from within where things arguably could have changed the entire story. This could be one. Kemper loved his father and was deeply affected by having to move so far away from him. His mother, away from a man she constantly belittled, turned her attention to Kemper and in turn called him worthless, useless, and no woman would ever love him because he was pathetic. Now mind you, Kemper is just nine years old. With his father nowhere around to take the brunt of his mother's daily tirades, Kemper began to act out. He would steal his sister's dolls, dismember and behead them, and after two near-death experiences by the hands of his older sister, one being pushed in front of a train and another being pushed into a pool and nearly drowning, Kemper had become obsessed with death. He would often convince his younger sister and her friend to play some macabre games. Well, the one I remember was one that was playing gas chamber or electric chair or something, and we had this big old overstuffed chair up in my room. And we'd, we'd uh, it was not just my sister and I, it was my sister and I and a friend, a close friend. We got into all these games. We got into one game where we'd roll up in a rug and a person would try to get out of it. It's just like a large throw rug. And it was, uh, I guess, what fascinated us individually about it is it was a completely, uh, it broke up the monotony, I guess, of what we were doing. Didn't have a lot of toys to play with. Uh, we got bored with those pretty quickly. So we looked for things to do. You roll up in the rug and, and you try to get out and the other two would leave the room and we see who could get out fastest, you know, try to work your way out sideways or scoot out the end of it or whatever. And uh, it went from that to being tied in this overstuffed chair with a cord or something or, or pieces of sheet or sash or something. This behavior progressed and eventually involved the family pets. At the age of 10, Kemper buried the family cat alive and once dead, he dug it back up, dismembered it, and placed its decapitated head on a stake. A couple of years later, the next family cat fell victim, but this time it was because Kemper was jealous. He felt that the cat favored his older sister, so he killed it, dismembered it, and hid the remains in his closet, presumably as a trophy of sorts, possibly to remind himself of the satisfaction he felt. His mother soon discovered the remains, and Kemper recalls feeling a sense of joy lying about the fate of the cat. His mother, for fear that Kemper may harm his sisters, began to lock him in the basement at night. Cold, alone, with no other light than the embers glowing through the wood-burning furnace, Kemper's disdain for his mother grew. As I stated before, the factors within this story could have changed the ending, but for whatever reason, his mother chose locking Kemper in a basement rather than sending him to get help for his extracurricular activities. The next part of the story involves Kemper escaping the abusive grasp of his mother, as at age 15, Kemper ran away to California to be with his father. Now, some time has passed, and his father has been remarried. He couldn't be bothered with his teenage problem child, so he sent Kemper to live with his paternal grandparents. In his grandfather, Kemper found a relationship like the one he shared with his father as a child. Kemper grew very close and adored him. To give him something to do, his grandfather bought him a rifle for target practice and hunting. Kemper didn't share the same relationship with his grandmother, though. 
as she wasn't very far from what he had with his mother. Soon, Kemper grew tired of his grandmother's constant ridicule, so after a heated argument, he grabbed the rifle he received from his grandfather, walked up to his grandmother, and shot her in the back of the head. Twice. It was also stated he repeatedly stabbed her. A bit overkill, don't you think? Kemper patiently waited for his grandfather to return home from the post office. He loved his grandfather, but didn't want to see him upset that his wife was dead inside the house. Then, as his grandfather pulled into the driveway, Kemper greeted him with a bullet to the back of the head. So Kemper was going through a little uh, transformation there, you know? Once yeah, his father you left, you could say that. <laughs> Once his father Getting left, drowned in the pool, yeah. stuffed in a cupboard like Harry yeah. Potter. Yeah, like. <laughs> pushed in front of a train. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, like, he he became obsessed with death, you know. So uh, some of the things that he would do to act out, as we talked about, was like he would steal his sister's dolls and dismember them. Yeah. All right. So me and my buddies had this conversation once. Okay. Uh, you've obviously seen the movie Toy Story. Yes. And. We got in a heated argument because they. I said that Sid. Remember Sid, the yeah, neighbor, yeah. clearly showed signs that he was going to become a serial killer. Or oh, I, yeah. And they swore like, "Oh, what's a kid playing with his toys?" Like, no, if you're dismembering toys and and <laughs> and burning them alive, yeah, you're like that's Ed Kemper at the yeah, end, of the stuffing day. them with M80s. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. that's that's definitely yes, a, a Kemper. That's what I said. Yes, act. I bet you they, they the writers wrote it that story about Kemper. Yeah. <laughs> They had to make the kids scary. Yeah. That's yeah, true. It, that is true. But other than that, for a little a kid to grow up like that, well, I mean, there's no love there. Right. And then, you know, he progressed from from the dolls to actual living things. Mm-hmm. That's part of the triad. Yeah. That with we were the, talking about earlier. Yep, yeah, with the cats. Buried it alive. Dug it up later just to see. Just to be yeah. proud of his work. Yeah. 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 Let's cut it up and see what happens. The the basement thing is is real is a real problem like that that has to be emotionally tolling on a oh yeah a child psyche yeah so not only are you like ridiculed and and verbally abused and whatnot throughout the day now we're just gonna throw you in the, in the basement yeah. like d- the dungeon you yeah. know get into the dungeon now that gives you a lot of time to like build up yeah. like hate and fantasies and you know, oh, you want to lock me in the basement? Yeah, he okay, couldn't, you couldn't yeah. express himself in any right. other way besides hate. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. So all his rage you know, is built up. So then, like, he goes, he's like, you know what? F this place. I'm going to go live with my dad. You know? Because everything was relatively good with my dad. I, I'm, yeah. When my dad was around. So he travels down there. He basically shows up at his dad's house. And, you know, his dad's remarried. Has a new family, everything like that. His dad's like, uh, listen to you, kid. I haven't seen uh, you in six years. So. Hey, son. <laughs> yeah, hey, buddy. Hey. Yeah, so my new wife, yeah, she doesn't want you here. So, <laughs> sorry. Go live with your grandparents. His one, the one ray of hope that yeah. he had in his life. Yep. It's shot down again. Absolutely. So he goes, he goes and lives with the grandparents, and now... What Kemper fi- finds in his grandfather is what he had with his father when he was younger. Like, his his grandfather is very supportive, you know, he's easy to talk to, you know, he's very caring with Ed. And Ed absolutely loves him. His grandmother, on the other hand, 
is a spitting replica <laughs> of, his, of his, his mother. So, I mean, he's, he's not catching a break no matter where he goes. So then he, he has this argument with his grandmother. Um, I guess he wanted to go out, do target practice or whatever. And because his grandfather had bought him a rifle, you know, to occupy his time. You know, that's what you do back in the 70s. You know, hey, let's go target shooting. Let's go hunting, whatever. And she was like, no, no, you're not going to go do that. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Except you're now the target. And he puts a couple in the back of her head. And I guess, you know, he stabs her or whatever. You know, he later on says that, why did you kill your grandmother? He's like, yeah, I just wanted to see what it felt like to kill somebody, you know? It's crazy that was his first victim. Yeah. Was his own grandmother. Now, his grandfather is out of the house. He, he was at the, I think he went to the post office or, or something like that. As we, you know, as we said, Ed loved his grandfather. Absolutely adored him. And he felt bad that he killed his grandma. Not because the grandma was dead, because it's going to upset his grandfather. And he doesn't want to experience that. He doesn't want his grandfather to go through with that and everything. So his grandfather comes home. He's like, hey, grandpa, welcome back. And kills his grandfather. Yeah. That, the logic there that if I just kill him, it'll make it all better. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, at least he doesn't have to, like, deal with all that, you know what I mean? You know, in his in his thinking. So then, you know, he basically confesses and calls his mother and he's like, oh, I killed grandma and grandpa, blah, blah, blah. So then he gets arrested at the age of 15 and he gets sent off to a psych ward. You know, you know what's crazy about that, too, is the... The vindication that that mom felt at that moment too oh, yeah. really kind of I knew he me. was fucking crazy. That's what I'm saying. I, yeah. I it annoys me because I, I'm like I said I'm not advocating for that Kemper by any means. Yeah. But we say this here a lot. We do feel for the child versions of these guys. The child, yeah, yes. the child versions. And uh, he never had a chance. Yeah. And then on top of that, knowing that she probably was just like, see, that's why I made him sleep in the basement. Mm-hmm. I knew he was going to do some shit like that. He could have hurt my babies. That was your baby, dude. Yeah. Yep. And you fucked him up. All right, so we'll go into uh, his little stay at the psychiatric hospital in Chapter 3. Atascadero State Hospital, the place Ed Kemper would call home for the next six years. Not home in the sense of white picket fences, puppies, and apple pie cooling in the windowsill. It's where the criminally insane go to live out their years, and Ed stood out from the rest. I know. He's 15 years old and stands well over 6 feet tall. Of course he's going to stand out. What I mean is, the doctors were puzzled as to why Ed was even there. During his trial... The court-appointed psychiatrist diagnosed Kemper with paranoid schizophrenia, a mental disorder where people lose touch with reality. Once at the hospital, the doctors ran a series of tests as per protocol. They disagreed with the court psychiatrist's diagnosis and re-diagnosed him with having passive-aggressive personality disorder. They also tested him for his IQ. Kemper scored a 145. Baffled and thinking the results were incorrect, they ran another IQ test. They were right. The results from the first test were incorrect. This time, he scored a 160. Ed Kemper was a genius. 
There are a couple of other things Kemper developed while at Atascadero. Compulsive masturbation, along with violent sexual fantasies. This occurs when a child reaching puberty has pre-existing anger and aggression issues, coupled with discovering their newfound sexuality. In Kemper's case, this was just a matter of time. However, he developed a coping mechanism during his early years of torment. He coped by appearing to the outside world as normal. Kemper did his best to put forward that impression, going as far as to earn the trust of his doctors. While there, Kemper became a member of the JCs and assisted them with testing other patients. By doing so, this gave Kemper the inside track as to how to pass these tests. By the time he was 21, Kemper was cleared to be released as his doctors declared that he was rehabilitated. Against their strong recommendation, however, Kemper moved back in with his mother. I got paroled to my mother. Atascadero decided that I didn't never need to talk to her again at all. Don't give her a Christmas present. Leave her alone. She got her pound of flesh out of you. I wasn't sniveling about my mother to them. I didn't like to hear what they had to say about her. Now living with his mother in a suburb of Santa Cruz, California, Kemper assimilated himself back into civilian life. He took some classes at the community college and held a few odd jobs. He also began hanging out in one of the cop bars in town, the jury room, and befriended several Santa Cruz police officers. They loved this friendly, funny behemoth of a man, and he soon applied to become a California state trooper. But because of his six foot nine frame and weighing 300 pounds, he failed to get into the academy. This didn't change the friendship he developed within the police department, though. They gave him a training officer badge. He drove a car similar to that of an officer, and it was stated that one officer even allowed him to borrow a gun. Shocking, I know. But don't forget, this is the early 1970s. As far as these officers knew, Kemper was just a gentle giant. After getting a job working for the Department of Transportation, Kemper got into a serious motorcycle accident. No longer able to work, he was awarded a $15,000 settlement. It doesn't seem like much by today's standards, but in the 1970s, it equated to $95,000. With a volatile concoction of money and way too much time in his hands, Kemper began traveling to college campuses and local highways. Atascadero State Hospital. Sounds like a lovely place. Yeah. Eddie's new home. <laughs> Eddie. So he goes to the hospital and they're like, mm, I don't think this guy's schizophrenic. Let's run a couple of other tests, you know? So they actually find out that he had, he actually has passive aggressive personality disorder, you know. So they ran a few other tests and come to find out, Mister Kemper is a freaking genius, you know. IQ of one hundred and forty five. Yeah, you know, and and one of one of the things that Kemper um, has adapted to his personality is that he can now assimilate into any socio situation so when he's there you know he's he actually like pretends that he's normal yeah he's picking up on social cues yeah. he's like, which is hard for right. a lot of for yeah broken individuals exactly so he's like okay this is how i'm supposed i'm supposed to act yep you know so i'm just gonna bide my time you know i'm gonna do what i need to do and and you know any sessions that i have just 
nonchalant. Yeah, okay. he's out there with the hairnet serving yeah. the lunch and yeah, you know. And they they actually he actually built so much trust with the doctors that they started giving him giving him like doctor responsibilities, so to speak. You know, like handing out the tests and whatnot for for other patients and stuff. Yeah. And while he's doing that, unbeknownst to them, he's learning all the answers. Those are the scariest people. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's... He's like, yeah, no problem. I'll take care of that for you. He's probably like a speed reader, too, you know, yeah. with a f- photographic memory. So yep. he's just like, boop, just scans the whole freaking test, and now he knows what, what to say. And it pays off because when he turns 21... Baffles me that yeah. a man killed two people and it's like, ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Just to see what I felt like. Yeah. I just want to see what it felt like. We're just going to reinstate him into society. Yeah. So now... When he's released, you know, the doctors are like, listen, you cannot go back to your mother's house because she is the root of all evil. Hmm. And, oh, I'm sure there's many, you know, therapy sessions oh, about yeah. his mother. Right. And where does he go? Goes right back to mommy. He's assimilating himself back into the, you know, civilian life. You know, he takes some college courses, you know, he gets a job. And, and one of the things that he does is he starts visiting the jury room which is known as a cop bar so now all the skills that he picked up in the hospital of how to appear normal and how to you know now he's making friends with all these police officers it's crazy you know and he actually tries to become a state trooper but you know dude's like a mammoth you know and the the weird thing is that he's six foot nine and the cutoff for a state troopers was six foot eight so if he was like an inch shorter, yeah, he, he would have been a state. He would have been a state trooper, yeah. you know, which is just, just freaking blows your mind. Six um, nine is in person is like when you yeah. hear it, it doesn't. When you see somebody who's six nine, oh, you, yeah. you look, you're yeah. like, wow. Yeah, we did a meet and greet one time with, with the, the UConn basketball players, yeah. you know, one time, and I was sitting in line and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, and they stood up to take a picture, and I'm just like, what? It doesn't. Geez, it looks like, weird. What? It the looks hell? weird. I feel like a midget. I'm six foot, you yeah. know. And you're like being towered over by these guys. It's it's crazy. So now he made all these friends with these cops, and the cops, you know, like, oh, you know, you had an interest in the police academy, you couldn't make it, but you know, here's our training officer badge, you know, so you can. It's like Dwight Troop. Yeah. So you can help us out or whatever. You know? Volunteer sheriff's deputy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Part time. You know, they they give him, you know, and, and allegedly one of them gives him a, a gun to borrow. Like, oh, yeah. You can tell it's, it's the 70s. Yeah. You're like, here you go. Do whatever you want with this. So, but you know, yeah, it's like it's the 70s. But in Kemper was the gentle giant. You know what I mean? So everybody loved him. So he ended up getting into an accident. And uh, he was awarded a $15,000 settlement, which nowadays is almost a hundred grand. That's a lot of money back then. Yeah. He's back with his mother. They're fighting again. He's got the cops on his side giving him guns and, you know, everything. And he's like, what do I do with my time? Yeah, and now you don't have to work. Right. So yep. he's just going to stew. He's going to think. Yep. You know, he does have, like, you know, he does, like, little odd jobs here and there. But most of the time he's like, yeah, I'm going to go. You know, I got everything else down. Now I'm going to try to see how I can go about dating a woman. Because he's 21, 22 years old now. Yeah. Never had a girlfriend. And you never had his first kiss. Never anything 
You know, with all that time in his hands, too. He was oh, yeah. <laughs> aggressively <laughs> masturbating. <laughs> yeah. He found that his sexual awakening. Yep. So now when he goes out, you know, he discovers that dealing with doctors is one thing. Dealing with police officers is another. But dealing with women. Yeah. It's, it's a whole new ballgame. In a group setting, it's very easy right. to... You know, insert yourself in that group, but when you yeah. have to actually have intimate conversations, you got to hold the conversation yourself. Yes, yeah, that's when people will be able to pick up on those those red flags. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll see how that turns out in the mm-hmm. next chapter. Yeah. You may think that this is where his thirst for murder began, but it took some time. There were hundreds of college-age women that Kemper had picked up hitchhiking, and nothing had happened. I need to be able to really communicate, and ironically enough, that's why I began picking people up. And I'm picking up young women, and I'm going a little bit farther each time. It's a daring kind of a thing. First, there wasn't a gun. I'm driving along. We go to a vulnerable place where there aren't people watching, where I could act out, and I say, no, I can't. And then a gun is in the car, hidden, and this craving this awful raging eating feeling inside i could feel it consuming my insides this fantastic passion was overwhelming me it was like drugs it was like alcohol a little isn't enough at first it is and as you adjust to that psychologically and physically you take more and more and more it's the same process so it finally came down to the thing of do i dare bring this gun out already realizing if that gun comes out something has to happen I didn't see it then, but it was going to happen. I was playing a dangerous game with a loaded gun that got us all. This all changed on May 7th, 1972. After a heated argument with his mother, Kemper took off in his car and began cruising the streets. He was ready, he thought, but his first co-ed murder didn't go quite as planned. After picking up Marianne Pesci and Anita Lucesa, both 18 years old, Kemper was contemplating how he would carry this out. He nearly got cold feet until one of the girls rubbed him the wrong way in what he perceived as rude glares and snide remarks by Marianne. She epitomized what really drove me. She was a haughty young lady. She's kind of stuck up, distant. I look back on it and I see a girl that was not beautiful. She was not plain. She was somewhere in between. And she was caught up in that beauty thing, like kids in the valley are, okay? Valley girls trying to make something of themselves and exploit little attributes they have and to downplay other ones. And she was playing a little Miss Distant with me. He made his move. When that gun was pulled out, I launched it out. I had it under my leg, out of sight, parallel to my, to my leg in the seat. It was something that had been thought out in fantasy, acted out, felt out hundreds of times before it ever happened. He pulled to the side of the road and tied up both girls at gunpoint. He then led Marianne away from the car. Out of sight from Anita, Kemper tried to strangle Marianne and discovered it would be more difficult than he anticipated. He turned to his knife. When you stab someone, they leak to death. They lose blood pressure, and you stab them more and more and more. You complicate it many times by where you're hitting, the pain you're causing, and the aggravation of the person involved, plus whether or not they leak a little faster. It wasn't working worth a damn. I stabbed her all over her back, and she even turned around. I stabbed her in the side and the stomach once. Why? As she turned around, I could have stabbed her through the heart. But her breasts were there. 
and it actually deflected me. I couldn't see stabbing a young woman in her breast. That's embarrassing. I didn't say that to them back then. I don't think I may have, but that's humiliating to admit that, that I was that affected by her presence. I stabbed her in the belly. That had to hurt worse. I didn't do it to make it hurt. I was trying to shut her up. And she ended up getting her throat cut. And uh, I learned the term ear to ear, what that meant, because that's the way it went. As Marianne bled out, Kemper made his way back to the car for Anita. I just gone through a horrible experience with her roommate stabbing her. And I was in shock because of it. I couldn't believe that it was that way. And I'm walking back there bewildered. I gotta kill her. I can't let her go. She's gonna tell him. Everybody's gonna get me. She sees the blood on my hands. What are you doing? She pulled back and she gasped. And I think, whoa, I don't want her to know what happened. I said, your friend got smart with me. She'd been getting really smart with me a lot, but I never hit her. I killed her, but I didn't hit her. I said, your friend got smart with me and I hit her. I think I broke her nose. You better come help. She's about to die. Why, do, why does she have to know that? I couldn't deal with telling her that. When I attacked her, she didn't at first realize what was happening. It didn't go through. She had very heavy coveralls on. It knocked her right up into the lid of the car. It didn't pierce the clothing. So it wasn't that swell knife anyway. I kept on just mindlessly attacking. She falls back into the trunk. I just killed a young woman. I slammed down the lid of the trunk. She isn't dead. She's dying. And I panicked. I thought, I just locked the car keys in there because I can't find them my pocket. Oh my God, I locked him in the trunk. I'm kicking on the trunk lid, yanking at him. Oh no, I don't believe this. I started to run and I tripped over the gun that I'd had in my pants that I had totally forgotten was there. I stopped, I said, stop and think. I collected my wits. Check all your pockets. I picked the gun up, I stuck it back in my pants. Now remembering I had one. I checked all my pockets and there's the keys in the back pocket. I never put them in my back pocket. I thought I was pretty slick and went and tripped all over myself, that first two murders. The first 24 hours, there were three clear times I should have been busted, and I wasn't. Because three different individuals or three different groups of people got scared and minded their own business. With both girls now dead, Kemper brings them back to his apartment. He decapitates them and then has sex with their lifeless bodies and heads before disposing of them the next day. Families reported the girls missing, but their fate was not known until August 15th when Marianne's head was discovered in the woods. Anita, however, was never found. So a lot of people think, you know, like, when Ed Kemper first came out of, out of you know, the hospital and everything, he automatically went right into doing all this horrible stuff. Yep. But it actually took numerous car rides, numerous people. I mean, we're talking hundreds I mean, he basically he tried to become a state trooper in this time. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, multiple women he yeah. picked up for rides. Yep, it didn't. You know, and, and each time, you know, I think it, he was actually legitimately trying to find a girlfriend. I think he was too because he actually went on a date with a woman. Yeah, like a legitimate date, and he had no idea how to act. You know, he's 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 twenty one. Do he you had, like cats? Yeah, <laughs> I love cats. <laughs> Do you have any dolls in your house? <laughs> I have a couple in the backyard. So he's like, no. <laughs> so this date is god awful, and of course, you know, he never speaks to this woman again. So now he he starts picking up people to like work on his social skills, and he's finding that 
a lot of these women are very like catty, very standoffish and and everything like that, you know. So it reminds him well well, all these women are just like my mother, basically. You know, so each ride a little bit builds up a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And finally it comes down to when he picks up Marianne Pesci. Uh, well, it also took a heated argument from his mom, too. Right, yeah. You yeah, she kind of pissed him off. Yeah. And, and he's like, all right, fuck this. So he picks up Marianne and Anita. And he is still scared shitless. Like, he's like, I'm going to do it. But. Psyching himself out in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> you can do this. <laughs> Even this first one turns into a big bumbling mess. You know, he's like dropping his gun. He locks his keys he, he loses his keys he doesn't know what the hell's going on and the thing that like like actually like stands out to me is that when he was stabbing Marianne he couldn't stab her in the breast yeah you l- know? listening to him right talk about the killing yeah because he's very eloquent the way he speaks and- right and you know a side note I always said this and it's kind of like demented to say but if I were to have a best friend, you know, as a serial killer, I would want it to be Ed Kemper. Because I could just sit there and listen to him talk I, yeah, forever. I, I, mean, I know what you're saying. You know what I mean? He's just the way he speaks. I mean, he's talking about cutting off women's heads and putting them on sticks and like all this yeah, but kind of shit. Yeah, he says it like a scholar. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It sounds, it's like, oh, it really? sounds like oh. a, psych, a yeah. psych class, like you're taking a psych class. <laughs> exactly. and you're like, wow. Yeah. Well, let me take notes, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, he, he doesn't want to stab Marianne in the breast. Whatever, I, 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 that that just stood out to me. So yeah. he, he kills Marianne and he moves back to Anita. And for some reason, he doesn't want Anita to think that he did anything bad, you know. But obviously, he's covered <laughs> in freaking blood. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So he made it, you know, like, oh, I, I, I punched her and I broke her nose. <laughs> no, you didn't, dude. You freaking gutted her, basically. So then um, he takes that knife and he starts stabbing Anita. Puts them both, to, you know. Those poor girls, like those poor girls too. Like, wow, you just you just had to rub the guy the wrong way. You had to say yeah. some snooty comment or yeah. whatever. Damn. Yeah. So I mean, well, you just don't know, you know. I mean, it, if if I got into a car, which I never would, but if I got into a car and the guy automatically was like weird as fuck, yeah. Like my reaction is going to be probably the same way. Like, bro, just get me to where I got to go. Yeah, don't yeah, talk yeah. to me. I don't want to have this comment. You know what I mean? Or just like, hey, pull over here and let me out. I'm done, you know? So he starts freaking out. He's got two dead girls here on the side of a road somewhere. Loses his keys. He's like, fuck. He, like, he's just going to like hoof it. He's like, I'm out of here. Fuck this. And then he's running. The gun falls out. And it sounds like a mess. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like the Keystone cop. <laughs> so that, uh, so as the gun's falling out, he's like, all right, take a deep breath, slow down. His fucking keys are in his pocket. So then he takes them back to the mother's house. And he ends up dismembering them, has sex with their heads. All right. It's a thing with the heads. No. Well, the, yeah, that's a, that's a, you know, common right. interest in this story, too. Right. So... Now, the thing with Kemper is, and the reason why he, he does these things with the heads is because that's where the personality is. That's where the, you know, when they were alive, that's where all the... Consciousness. Yeah. 
consciousness was. And secondly, because he was so emasculated when he was a kid, like, you're never good enough for a woman, blah, 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 killing them and cutting their heads off. Now they can't judge him. Yeah. You know? He gets to do whatever he wants. Now he, they can't ridicule him, you know, if he, whatever he does, if he has sex with a corpse for, like, 32 seconds. They're not going to be like, that's it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's all you got? <laughs> oh, that one got me. That you, one know? Got me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that's it? <laughs> Sounds like a cartoon. Yeah. Oh, man. So this is like his, his first one, so he doesn't want to keep the remains around too long. So within two, 24 hours... Anita and Marianne are disposed of. Heads separated. He, the heads and the hands are cut off. Dumps the bodies one place. Dumps the heads and the hands in another place. And calls it a day. So you would hope that that would be it. You know, he had his thrill, whatever. Nope. Gets into another fight with his mother. And off he goes. Oh, he's feeling real brolicky yep. too. Now. Yeah. So we'll 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 talk about how he takes the next steps here in the next chapter. She didn't realize she was messing with a different end. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, I finally got laid. Yeah, you know, you, I'm a man now. You don't know what you're talking about, mom. <laughs> I finally got laid. It's like full circle back to uh, the Florida man of the day when he was like Bobby Boucher on his tractor. <laughs> and I like Mickey, and she likes me back. <laughs> And she showed me her boobies, and I like them, too. <laughs> I'm going to pay the foosball, mama. <laughs> oh, my God. Next chapter, before it gets out of control. All right, all right. <laughs> A serial killer was born. Any release Kemper felt from the murders of Marianne and Anita was soon gone. Still fighting with his mother, Kemper took to the streets. Here on September 14, 1972, he found 15-year-old Koku. After deciding it would be quicker to hitchhike than wait for the bus to take her to dance class, she soon found herself in the front seat of a car belonging to Ed Kemper. Although all of his cold-blooded murders will pull at your heartstrings, this one in particular and what Aiko does will leave you gasping. One victim let me back in the car. I locked myself out. She opened the door for me. My gun was under the seat. What in the hell am I doing telling you that? Am I looking, am I, am I a masochist? Am I looking to be tormented further? I'm trying to show you just how awful this got, how commanding these rages got. Unlike Marianne and Anita, whose bodies were disposed of in the first 24 hours. Kemper hung on to Aiko a bit longer. Thursday night, I killed her. I took off Friday, I didn't go to work. I called in sick, took CTO. Dismembered her body, got rid of her body, but kept her head in her hands because they're identifiable. They're highly identifiable. I kept those at the apartment. That Thursday night, I took her. Friday morning, she was dismembered. Friday night, she was disposed of. Saturday morning, I left. And I didn't have, I wasn't satisfied that I, I took the head along in the hands, but I didn't, I couldn't put them someplace that I would, could be sure they would be dug up by an animal or just be somewhere. It was it's scary going out there trying to bury somebody or dispose of body parts 
in a community or out in the, even in the boonies where you don't know where you're at and who can come up at any moment. I had some real close calls there where people had come out of nowhere. It was around this time that police and campus security put out a bulletin urging women not to hitchhike, adding if they must, only get into cars that have a campus parking sticker. With his mother working at the university, as fate would have it, Kemper's car had such a sticker. His fourth victim, Cindy Shaw, was picked up in January of 1973. While suffering the same fate as the previous three, Kemper was getting bolder with the disposing of the remains. With Cindy, Kemper buried her head face up in his mother's garden just below her window because, as Kemper would explain, his mother always liked to look down on people. On February 5th, 1973, and in a fit of rage after having a violent argument with his mother, Kemper made his boldest move yet and drove onto the campus grounds. He soon found his next two victims, Rosalind Thorpe and Allison Liu, who were looking for a ride to go off campus. After a brief exchange, Kemper shot both girls in the head and then drove past the security checkpoint with their lifeless bodies still in the car. With his mother at work, Kemper took their bodies back to his apartment where he dismembered them and had sex with their bodies and heads. It was stated that Kemper had given many people rides in his car that ended with them still breathing when they reached their destination. Only when the urge was strong enough and when he was pushed to the brink by his mother did he act. In early April 1973, Kemper found himself pulling over to give another two girls a ride. I picked up two girls who were so much like the first two, it was unbelievable. Almost identical circumstances. And I let them go. Everything went towards killing them, and I didn't. But I'm saying, wow, it's uncanny. It was almost like it was meant to be that way. And I said, wow, this got to stop. And I let them out. They never even knew what was going on. I let them out. I would have gotten away with those two being murdered. I said, no, it's got to stop. That was it. The realization of a lifetime of anger, resentment, hurt, and ridicule has come to head. Since the age of nine years old, the dolls, the cats, his grandparents, the six innocent girls, all were a stand-in for what he really wanted to do. Kill his mother. On April 19th, after a brief exchange, the decision was made. I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. And she went out to a party, she got soused, she came home, went to sleep. I was woken up by that, I got, came out, I walked up to her bed, she's laying there reading a paperback, as many thousands of nights before. And she said, oh, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Shit. I looked at her, I said, no, I said, good night. And I knew I was gonna kill her, you know. And I'm so cold, it's so hard. It hurts because I'm not a lizard. I'm not from under a rock. I came out of her vagina. I came out of my mother. And in a rage, I went right back in. For seven years, she said, I haven't had sex with a man because of you, my murderous son. It's one of our arguments cut off her head and I humiliated her corpse. I have to interject for a moment. Kemper states that he humiliated her corpse. In my opinion, that's putting it lightly. What really happened is that he cut off his mother's head and used it to perform oral sex on himself. 
but that's not all. After he was done defiling her corpse, Kemper placed her head on a shelf, threw darts at it, and screamed at her for a considerable amount of time. He removed her tongue and vocal cords and shredded them in the garbage disposal. Then again, had sex with whatever was left of her body. Let's continue. Six young woman dead because of the way she raises her son. And what's her closing words? I suppose you want to sit up all night and talk. I still loved my mother, and it's hard for somebody to comprehend that you murder your mother through love. It isn't a rational process. It's a very painful process, and I've got to still live with that. Kemper wasn't done, though. There was one more person he decided he needed to take care of in order to stop his rampage. His mother's best friend and partner in Kemper's torment, Sally Hallett. After hiding what was left of his mother's remains, Kemper called Sally and said his mother would like to invite her over for dinner. When she arrived, he strangled her to death and put her body in the closet. Kemper then fled town. He stopped at a payphone and called the Santa Cruz police to confess. Now remember, Kemper was a friend to a lot of these officers, so at first, they didn't believe him. It is said that some of them even laughed it off. Kemper had to keep calling back until he spoke to someone who would believe him. Police sent a squad car to the house to perform a wellness check, and with the grisly sight of what remained in the house, Ed Kemper's reign of terror was over. A serial killer is born. Wow. You know, uh, first off, right off the rip, that's a lot of killing going on in this apartment. Yeah. How, how, like, even if the mom's working, you gotta come home and smell, like, copper... Like, how do you just dismember bodies and then not clean it? Like, I, I, don't know. I have no idea. Does she not go in one side of the house or the apartment? I don't or? know. Apparently, she comes home freaking drunk half the time. So, mm-hmm. so who knows? Yeah. But yeah, he moves off to Aiko Ku, 15 year old. And it, this is like actually like, I mean, they're, they're all really sad, but this one kind of hits me a little bit because Kemper got out of the car and he actually locked himself out all right and this is like now he's he's already made like a move to like be aggressive towards her yeah and he's like um can you let me back in a car and like she lets him back in you know it's like oh my god why what are you doing why don't do that and you know he had the, the gun underneath the seat and everything so he ends up taking her kills her uh brings her back to the apartment cuts off her head and hands does what he does with the head. Unlike Marianne and Anita, he holds on to Aiko a little bit longer. Part of it, you know, he said... 15? Yeah, he, he, he I says... I it wasn't because she was young. Uh, no. Like, he says that he was fearful. You know, he just didn't want to dispose body parts anywhere. Yeah. But, me personally, I think it was more of a sadistic reason why. Like, he wanted to hold on to it a little bit longer, you know? He disposes of Aiko, and he moves on to Cindy Shaw. Cindy Shaw, you know, puts up a little bit of fight. Obviously, doesn't work. So he brings her back to the apartment again. This time, he keeps the head, and he buries it in the garden, right outside the kitchen window. And he buries the head face up. Now, I heard two versions of this. And they're both basically the same thing. One, because his mother liked to look down on people. Yep. And the second was that his mother always wanted people to look up to her. So either way you look at it, there was a significance in in him burying her head that way. 
So he goes off and becomes more and more brazen, and he actually picks up two girls, kills them basically on campus. And at this time, you know, all these kidnappings, all these, you know, missing people. So now the university, you know, they're telling everybody don't don't take rides from strangers or only only travel in twos. Yeah. And only get into a car that has a campus sticker. Well, Ed's mother works there, so his car oh. has a sticker. You know, so that didn't help out too much. So he actually kills these two girls on on campus and he drives past a security checkpoint and and they were shot in the head too. So yeah. you know there was splatter. Oh yeah. So he gets by. I mean, he could have got caught so many yeah. freaking times, and he just didn't. Goes through the usual routine with them and picks up two more girls. And at this point, he's like, "What the fuck am I doing?" Yeah, you wanted to stop. You know, these girls aren't where my hate and my rage is coming from. It's coming from you know who it is. Yeah, it's coming from Mrs. Kemper here. He ends up having, like, one last little argument with his mother. You know, she basically says, you know, why why do I want to freaking talk to you all night? You know what I mean? And he's like, okay, all right, we'll see how this goes. So he ends up killing her with a with a claw hammer. And What a way to go out. Yeah. Well, I guess she was, like, sleeping and passed out, so I don't know if she really felt anything, but still a shitty way to go. So he does his usual usual thing, chops off her head. Then, oh, you, you, even you had to hesitate. Yeah, there. even yep. you, the serial holic himself, had to fucking <laughs> hesitate there. And has his way with his mother's face. Oh, yeah. What a weirdo. Um, he puts her head up on a up on a banner up on a banister there. And he's throwing darts at it. He's screaming at her. He's like, "Fuck you, you fucking bitch! This is what you did!" Blah, like for hours. You oh know, just having like a complete. Meltdown. I just got the craziest visual in my head about him like dancing around the living room, yeah. like playing like music. Yeah, fucking just oh man, yeah. it, what a what a just in a complete trance. Oh, yeah. at this point, you know yeah. what I mean. So all he, his crazy came out at once. Yeah, right? that, that uh. So in the story, I, I mentioned that he 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 cut out her tongue and ton, uh, vocal cords and uh, shredded them in the garbage disposal. Apparently, that's incorrect. The garbage disposal was broken. So he tried to. He tried to. Well, it so, makes sense. He never wanted to hear her speak again. Right. And so. and when that when he tried to do that, he basically said, you know, it, it figures. You know, she she still got one up on uh, me. You know, yep. Like I couldn't completely shut her up. So um, another thing that kind of like creeps me out is when he talks about, uh, you know, I came out of her vagina, and with a rage, I went right back in. Oh. So he's probably hate. Excuse my language. He's hate fucking her. Ugh. Corpse. You know? Ugh. So, oh. <laughs> so he, when he's done with that, he's got all that out of his system. He actually goes to the jury room to visit his police officer drinking buddies. Shots on me. Yeah. It's and they're boys. down there having a grand old time and hooting and hollering. And So he comes back home and he's like, you know what? There's one more that I need to take out before this is all said and done. So he calls up his mother's friend, says, hey, come on over. She wants to have you over for dinner. And she's yep. like, okay. So she gets there, and Kemper strangles her, and and that's that. Hides her body in the closet and leaves town. He ends up in Colorado. And he's like, why am I running? You know, I'm, I'm yep. just done with all this. This is stupid. So he pulls over. I believe it was in uh, Pueblo, Colorado. Gets on the pay, pay phone and calls 
the Santa Cruz Police Department. One of his friends that he knows there. The friend answered. He's like, hey, what's going on, Ed? And Ed's like, hey, listen, I uh, murdered my mother and her friend. You might want to go by the apartment. And the cop was like, yeah, right. Yeah, okay, buddy. Yeah, okay. Stop messing with me. (laughs) Good old Ed, you know. And they actually hang up on him. But if you think about it, he's probably said some crazy shit oh, yeah, yeah. to them, like at, yeah. at the bar. You know what I mean? Like, whoa! Yeah, like, yeah. So like, hey man, come, come down! Like, yeah, right. Like that's just crazy. Yeah, talking about killing people. And yeah. Stuff. So he's actually he actually had to call back a few times for them to actually take him seriously. They're, they're like, all right, we'll send somebody by, Ed. You know, stay right where you are. So the cops go there and walk in, and they're like, oh shit! And there was like a letter, like saying, I'm not sloppy. Sorry for the mess, gents, but I had to go, you know. Jesus. The Colorado police pick him up, and that's the end of it. The end of uh, Ed Kemper's yeah, reign. Yeah. Little did those guys know he was dancing around the living room. Oh, yeah. Like Buffalo Bill. And, uh, yeah, probably swinging his mother's head around. <laughs> I think the way he ended it, how he realized, like, once, once he killed his mom, he knew one more person that he had, like, his hate for. Right. And he was done. Mm-hmm. He, I think, if it, if you do, you think that if he killed his mother initially, those girls would have been like he would have never turned to killing females. Uh, I think so. Yes. I, I, I he, he didn't, he didn't want to keep killing. Right. These girls. He after like, uh, I don't. It's interesting to see that happen. Yeah. Normally, would... normally, uh, you know, serial killers like the hunt. They like mm-hmm. the preying on. You know, small like younger females, smaller females, and yeah, vulnerable. Yeah, vulnerable women. It wasn't about that for him. It was it was the hatred of his mom. Yeah, and he didn't have the balls to do it to his mother. Yeah, at first, she you still know. had control over him even yeah. at that point. Yep. So know? he was directing his anger elsewhere, and unfortunately, six women lost their lives. You would say Ed Kemper's your uh, up there on your list? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's my he's my numero uno. As he's far a, as a, as far as interesting personality, yeah, the head thing is yeah. is crazy, <laughs> crazy thing. Like I'm a man now, mama. <laughs> All right, well, great episode. Yeah, um, it was a blast. So just before we go, to become a criminal on Patreon, visit Patreon.com/backslash/criminalaf. There's four tiers. You can donate as little as two dollars a month to help the podcast. And for those who select the Kemper and Bundy tiers. You get an exclusive I'm a Criminal Patreon shirt to rep your favorite podcast. In Ex- every Exclusive. Exclusive. Like nobody else will get these except for the Kemper and Bundy people. Now for everyone $5 and above, you'll get our Patreon only episodes called True Crime Fast Facts, where we discuss current true crime events. And that's all at Patreon.com. Criminal AF. You can also gift us a one-time donation through PayPal on our website. Just go to criminalafpod.com and click on the donation tab. Any and all donations are greatly appreciated. Absolutely. Uh, Please go follow us on all of our socials. On Instagram, it's at criminalafpod. Twitter, it's at criminalaf. TikTok, at criminal underscore af. And if you love what we're doing here, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click five stars on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your positive reviews bring awareness and bump us up in the rankings absolutely and if you're watching us at criminal af on youtube like and subscribe so you know when our next videos drop and be sure to leave a comment 
Uh, to leave us a voice message, go to our website or click on the link in the episode description. Any questions we receive will be played and answered in our next episode. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, please leave us a message. Now, for merch, you can go to criminalafpod.com and click on shop. There's tons of great merch to rep Criminal AF and show your support. And with that, until next time, see ya.